episode seven. Here's what you should have done. You should have incorporated cartwheels more, and then I think they would have been on board. I should have worked on my backflips and my front handsprings. Welcome, everybody, to the Ghost Little Show. I am your host, Alex Crum. Joining me today, as usual, is my fellow compatriot in this nonsense, Joel. I'm awesome. I'm very excited <laughs> for all things Episode 7. If you don't know what we do here, this is a uh, jokes, media, content, and marketing show, I suppose, is how I normally introduce things. We usually go on a list of topics. We give ourselves a time limit for each one, try to keep it to under an hour whenever we can, and also try to be succinct in our answers to the questions that we've drawn up for ourselves ahead of time. If we can keep it under five minutes a question, we're doing pretty well, but we need to institute a couple of rules. If we're mid-conversation and things are going well, we need to have like a like a bonus ex- time extender or something like that. You know, we have to have a, a set of rules to go along with uh, those sorts of circumstances. Yeah. Okay. You can add some sort of like power up Mario sound here in post, just to let people know we're going to overtime. I will definitely add in a bunch of like bonus activation. When you, if you think back to like the '80s or the '90s when arcades were very much in vogue, the noise that came out of the machines just to alarm everybody as they were playing, like this is going to go on for much longer than you anticipated, because you <laughs> slotted a quarter straight into the machine, and you're like, yes, yes. All of a sudden, you're, you're playing, you're playing Outrun for another 90 seconds. <laughs> like, God, oh, jeez, this is so much better than my life. At least we've gone from pay to play to pay to win. I don't know. I actually, I don't know if that's good or not. Well, <laughs> just a spoiler alert. We may get into some unlicensed psychology here. Take nothing we say as advice. <laughs> no, but we can be insightful. I mean, I've read a book. You know? <laughs> I've read a few things about this. I've read some tweets and articles. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm pretty confident that I'm a that I'm a smart man. I, I usually say. I mean, I've said in a bunch of other episodes that, you know, I'm, I'm college educated, all right? <laughs> you know, a product of the of the American and also, you know, sometime in the European uh, schooling, higher education schooling system. So I'm a, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty sharp individual over yeah, here. You're also very well trained for working on an assembly line. They've got those those grooves already formed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Learned all about that in college. <laughs> Now, apparently, I don't know if this is actually true, but I've heard that the original, especially the public school system, was really initially designed to prep people for factory life, because that was sort of the de facto job for somebody who would be in public school. So you have the buzzers, you have the time-slotted education, you have the sort of repetitive tasking versus more free-form education, which isn't really suited to an assembly line or a blue-collar life. Is that why the insult of, hey, college boy, became such an insult because if you weren't somebody who was following your destiny to work on an assembly line or get their hand caught in a combine thresher you were somehow <laughs> you were somehow too self-righteous to uh, think of uh, the other blue collar folks yeah you can't you can't trust someone with the college education Whoa, my look, brother... at, look at johnny two hands over here he's got two hands yeah. topically enough my brother's been trying to find his path he ended up working at a exotic animal furs production company so he was like working on a slicer so he's basically trying to slice off all the fat off of these hides that come in and he's like this is gonna be great 
and I talked to him a month in and he's like, dude, I'm going to lose a hand. I can't do this. So then he basically quit after a month or two. That would be terrifying. I mean, imagine how many close calls he's had if he's uh-huh. deciding, like, I'm not going to work near a spinning blade every day. That's not and, the career. And he's like, and between us, he's like, between us two, he's the neurotic, careful one. And he's like, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I, I think it's a good call. Yeah, it, it's either going to be that. Maybe he could just downgrade. You know, he's he's comfortable around spinning blades, but he's just not that many. So maybe he should just go work in a deli or something. He could work in a car wash. Same yeah. physics, much softer. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're just spinning. Those are just spinning hugs. Spinning sponges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, now I'm clean and frothy. Uh, I think we're I think we're abusing the time here. Let's yeah, okay. uh, let's jump right in. Do you want to lead on the questioning, or do you want me to do it? Let's let's mix things up a little bit. Okay, this is my first time doing this. Alex, prepare for great and smooth questions as I find right. them and I stall for time. And here we go. I am starting the timer. Okay. Five minutes. Okay. I'm actually excited to lead the way on this one because I think Alex is a little softer than I am uh, socially and politically. So Alex, let's start out with this. Talk to me a little bit about tribalism in a modern context. How could a reactivation or refinding of tribes be a path forward for millennials, humanity, people in general? I worry about tribes because it means that one group of people living on one side of the river is different from the group of people living on the other side of the river. Genetically, they're probably not that different, right? It's just, you know, this one group of people hunts the deer over here and the others hunt the bears over here. And you would like to believe that there's no real reason for these two tribes to exist except for the geographical arrangement around them. You would like to believe that probably the resources are abundant enough on both sides of the river. And the only reason that there are tribes is because you need to kind of keep to the people that you can know and trust. And you can't trust those dudes that wear the bear skins. And the dudes who wear the bear skins can't trust the dudes who wear the deer skins. What is really the difference between those people other than the fact that they trust one, trust their own kind more than they trust the other? If they were to, you know, become friends and examine each other's tribes, they probably isn't a whole lot different about them. Now, if we put that into a modern context, do the people in Brooklyn trust the people in Manhattan? Probably. Do the people in America trust the people in Europe? Well, now that's a little bit bigger question. Do the people on planet Earth trust the Zeepsorps on planet Gleepplop? Well, we don't know if they are out there. Is the human tribe something that we should strive for when we all recognize on a genetic level, as long as we could get to know one another and recognize that we can share energy and share resources, shouldn't that be our end goal destination? That is the question that I posit to you. I suppose I answered your question with another question. <laughs> I think there's a period and a question mark in that response. I think I think you're right in a sense, right? It doesn't really matter who has the sheep and who has the elk anymore. I think we've kind of, we've moved beyond that. There's certain kinds of tribalism I think we're moving away from that are a detriment to our society. So for example, this is some rose tinted glasses, but even growing up in the nineties as a kid, I remember everyone thinking we're Americans, we're the best, things are great here, we love each other. You know, you take that back 20 years to the seventies, the sixties, well, we had a few wars that tore things up a little bit, but moving away from that unified identity of being, we're all Americans, we're all here to make it work. I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the public discourse, the public debate, right? We're no longer Americans. Now it's as a insert identity, as a insert identity. I feel this way or that way and you're wrong because you have you know, this set of characteristics. 
So it's almost a slip from what I would think might be a positive tribalism, you know, American exceptionalism, sort of pulling pulling each other up by the bootstraps, judging people on their actions, not their identities. We've sort of slipped away from that, almost back towards like, you have this side of the river, you have that side of the river. And I think another thing too, just in a more micro context, like just for myself personally, coming here to Boston, you know, I used to, when I was a lot younger, I did a lot of martial arts, I did kickboxing, et cetera, which sort of puts you in this little tribe of psychos who want to run up and down hills and punch <laughs> each other. <laughs> so I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I think we should be mindful of how we draw our distinctions because I don't think you can necessarily avoid people grouping up and sort of tribing themselves. I think we just need to be mindful of how we do it and what the outcomes are. What do you think these tribes would be in a modern context? Do you think it is people who live in a geographic, is it again, people who live in a geographical area? It doesn't matter uh, any other type of background, but like you said, they identify perhaps more as people of a particular generation or age who live in this part of this city. And they think of themselves that way before they think of themselves as Americans. It's fair. You could think I'm an Idaho boomer or I'm an East Coast millennial. I don't, I don't know that we have the right answer, but I do think that by not examining it and having more public debate on it, we're letting a destructive sort of tribalism take over. You know, sort of the tyranny of the majority, the focus on really identity markers over values, beliefs, and culture. That's a very enlightened way to go about it because you're still thinking of you would like to be part of a larger population that possesses positive values as opposed to being part of a smaller splinter faction that is very, very specific. I'm trying to, I'm trying to track on this. Yeah, I, I think, I think you're getting there. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to say I have the final answer to that, <laughs> but I think it's a, I think it's a great discussion to be having. Do you think and, we all, one, one final question, because we just yeah, ran, out of, ran out of buzzer. Um, do you think we all have to go to war with one one to another and New Hampshire declares war on Vermont and, <laughs> you know, North Dakota, you know, slaughtering brother in South Dakota and things like that. Do you, do you think that's the solution or do you think we're just going for, no, man, we're, we're more comfortable in this group of people. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to hate on the, the folks on the other side of the river, I guess is the, is the thing that I'm driving at. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. I, I think obviously in this day and age, we can mostly do it nonviolently, but you know, there are European countries now that are having some serious resurgence in a little more uncomfortable right-wing nationalism just because they've seen their demographics and their culture and their cities changing so rapidly. And I don't think we should cut off any immigration, whatever, but it's just to be aware of those longer-term trends. Yeah. It's, it's weird the way that the, the global genetics are just becoming different because everybody is living everywhere now. And it's just odd yes. the way that the old, the old lines don't really exist anymore. Yeah, that's true. And there are cultures and ideas that are just bad ideas. Some yeah. countries bring bad ideas to other countries and vice versa. And it's, you know, you got to be able to sort of suss that stuff out. But let's okay, move on to the next I question. Got my hand on the, I got my hand on the buzzer. Once you read the question, well, I, will, I will activate the timer. All right. All right, Alex. I want to hear your thoughts on this. What is the 140 character mindset? Uh, I don't know. So I don't, I don't know. can you provide more context to that question? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. So the reason I was bringing this up is a lot of our political discourse is now happening in 140 characters or less. Recently, it's been bumped up to 280. But, you know, the president of the United States, one of his main channels of communication to the common man or the younger voter is through Twitter. 
And you can do that via links, images, and 140 character thoughts. What do you think that says about our abilities to think and communicate? I think it lessens our ability to form more cohesive ideas because it's very easy to do something very sloppily if it is done in spontaneous 140 character, 280 character bursts. And it's hard to form a actual, an actual story. I think we talked about it last time where the speed of information outpaces the speed of human comprehension at this point. Back in the day, you would newspapers and magazines would pay staffed journalists to take six months and write a piece. And that piece, that article, it might be you know, 4,000 words, it might be 8,000 words, who knows how long it is, but they were out there pounding the pavement, doing research on something and generating a story. Giant reports and pieces of, you know, political intelligence, those things aren't delivered with total cohesion in 140 characters. They're delivered in, you know, thorough, well-crafted ideas. And I think the 140 character mindset is harmful because it, demands that you are always always sh almost shouting because you need to slide in there as quickly and as forcefully as you can with without the time to comprehend like a larger story or actually encapsulate these things we put ourselves at a disadvantage of truly understanding what the other person might be trying to say no i think i think you're spot on there the way i see it is any important discussion has a lot of shades of gray and there needs to be a lot of room for understanding of you know, when somebody misspeaks or it's sort of what somebody means by what they say or like what the underlying assumptions are. And I think kind of to transition, going to 280 characters, it's twice as much space. I think it's probably a good thing. Um, I will say, and I'm not usually one to jump on the shit on Trump train, him, him in 280 characters is actually less cohesive than him in 140, <laughs> which I think, I think is a bad sign. Um, one thing that I've been really excited about and sort of why we're doing this, you know, this podcast project together is podcasting coming around as sort of a long form of entertainment or media or thought. Sort of the way HBO took TV shows and movies and stretched them out to tell a bigger and better story. I think podcasting is a way that people are starting to push back and say, I want to hear people talk for two hours about a really nuanced and sort of uh, vague subject. I think 240, I think 140, 200, 280, they both have a place, right? It forces you to be concise. It forces you to really figure out what it is you want to say. But if that's all you're doing, then it's hard to say really sort of the deeper bits of conversation that are important for understanding. I've always felt the damaging thing with uh, one's ability to publish something on the internet is it's so slick that there's no friction demanding that you make sure that there is a certain comprehensiveness to it. It's too, it's almost too easy, which is both good and bad because it means that grandma can post some photos, but it also means that certain individuals can be given this gigantic sewage pipe that they can pump their content into. Who are you and talking I think, about? Uh, you, you, can, you can insert anybody that you want there, quite <laughs> honestly. Yeah. The, the, the troubling thing is when it's so easy, you don't bother to check yourself because the response is, oh, I messed up if you, if you do something that you didn't really mean to or the point didn't get across or, what, or whatever the case may be. The, the, the reaction instead is, well, it was so easy to publish it the first time, 
so easy to tweet that, so easy to publish a video. I'm just going to do another one and bury the thing that I messed up on. You never have to own any mistakes because there was no mistake. It's just the next item on the list, which means that we aren't actually telling a story. Everyone is just tilting their tilting their heads back up to the sky and yelling as loud as they can. <laughs> that's that's yeah. you can't talk to the sky, man. You can't <laughs> talk to the sky. I think one thing one thing uh, just to close this topic here. One thing I'll say is anyone who's really active on social media try to make sure you're active on some sort of long form as well. Even if it's a journal that you never share with anybody, take some time to write down a couple pages. You'll be surprised at the things you drag out of yourself. Yeah, I I took myself off of Twitter uh, a couple of months ago and only have intermittently checked it uh, over the last couple of days just out of, I don't know why, I there was a reason. I can't remember what it was. That's probably not good. I can't remember why. Um, but since I've been doing that and sort of seeing the state of things, I'm still like, no, I made, I made the right move, <laughs> not staying, not staying on there with as much frequency. So I just check it through third party. Like if people at, if people at mention me or, or do things like that, I can get notifications through other, other apps, but I don't have, still don't have Twitter installed on my stuff. Okay. Alex, what is fake news destroyed? What has it done to the public discourse? You know, how do you have an argument now when, the very basis of reality is now up for debate. Uh, I don't care about anybody who says anything is uh, is fake news because those people are, are definitely liars. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit something about myself. Um, right. I'm really good at reading people. Um, I'm really good at sensing people's discomfort because I'm a discomforting individual. I'm a weirdo, and uh, I can I can make people feel whatever, whatever I need to in, in a certain moment, because I'm like that, which means I've seen every type of interaction and inter every type of expression. And as long as the person is a person, chances are I can tell when they are lying or they're trying to, they're trying to get out of something or, or what have you. Uh, fake news is stupid because, uh, the people who are saying something is fake news, usually liars. Uh, they're, they're really afraid of getting caught. Uh, these people are terrible at apologizing for things. And when you what have, about when it really, what about when it really is fake? Like somebody made mm -hmm. up a meeting, somebody made up a story about a pedophilia ring in a pizza pizza parlor in DC. Yeah, even that, even that. It means that again, we're probably too quick to jump to the story being an actual story. Mm -hmm. No one wants to bother to be like, that sounds really far fetched. Should we send one person down there to investigate it before we uh, publish it and let other people? see it again it's the the friction of publishing these things is too mm -hmm. slick people don't have to think they can just do it for a laugh which i know is something that you have a little bit more patience for um <laughs> uh, you know doing like oh man i'm gonna do the most outlandish stupid lie and see how people react i hate that kind of humor and i know how much you love it to me that's like it's it's just so troubling because it means that like <clears throat> It's like that emoji. It's it's the tears emoji, you know. Yeah, that, that it's like you thought, you thought that was real. Like mm -hmm. you wound you wound up a joke and you let it go. Yes, the it could be funny, but there are also repercussions that that person probably wouldn't own up to if it meant mm -hmm. that something terrible happened as a result of fake news in this case. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. I think uh, for me at least, the biggest 
thing I worry about with it is a how easy it is to spread, even programmatically. Yeah, like, I'm sure there's already Google, Google perpetrates that stuff. There's already machines accident. out there. Yeah, exactly. And the right, the right fake news story gets enough retweets, and suddenly Google thinks it's real news. Yeah. And I think it's very damaging to the public discourse when you can't even go on the basis of just what the facts are. You know, I think in my at least like in my father's generation, if you know the New York Times ran a big story about something and there's like very qualified journalists attached, obviously you know there's some room for interpretation, but you have this common ground to move forward on any discussion with. Whereas now it's hard to even find that things have gotten very very slippery. It's because news uh, remains entertainment at this point because you got to fill the hours of the day, and it's really cheap to produce news, and it's really lucrative to sell ad space on news uh, sites and networks because you know people people got to know, and when there's always something going on, they think that there's something that they need to know. But the fact of the reality is there probably isn't. Um, and the the other thing was it you know in our parents' generation, perhaps in those moments. No one wanted to be the one who reported too early and reported the wrong thing because that was embarrassing and you had to report a retraction. These days, I don't think there's much of an embarrassment if uh, no, somebody think, jumps the gun. I think we're okay with yellow journalism to some degree at this point. And that's embarrassing. It is. It is. But uh, you know what? I think the fact that we're having this conversation, a lot of people are having this conversation. I, I think in the last, even in the last year, people have really started to take a look at this. Now, I'm going to go off script a little bit here. I have one question I think is, it's based on an article I read that thought was very interesting. So one of the news organizations I follow is called Zero Hedge. So they do a lot of like market analysis and culture and commentary, sort of one of those mixed bag things. Yeah. And they were taking a look at the educational background of you know, the executives at Twitter, the executives at Facebook, particularly before they really found their sort of big public company footing. And they're saying, you know, so much of our social system right now is tied to these social media platforms. Think Russians advertising during our elections, think fake news screwing up debate, etc. The point was made that the people who are running these companies that are sort of owning the public sphere at this point, the people who started those, they don't have sociology backgrounds, they don't have humanities backgrounds, they may not necessarily be that tied into history and sort of how demagoguery actually works. They just wanted to build basic money machines. They wanted to build things that sell ads, that print money, that keep people coming back. And they may not have had the education or background to sort of plan for the cultural impacts of the things they created. I know we just hit time, but I'd love to hear a quick thought on that from you. Yeah, the people working at a technology company trying to come, to come up with an app, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm, I have Twitter in my head as I come up with this uh, explanation. Man, they had no idea. They just wanted to be a thing that, I mean, we talked about this last time, where they, they wanted to be a thing where uh, your funny conversations with your friends could be a, could be a, public, uh, a public discourse. And that's kind of cool and interesting. They didn't come from a place where they, they weren't philosophy majors. They weren't sociology and anthropology majors. They, they weren't probably setting didn't study. out. They probably yeah. didn't study Martin Luther. Yeah. They, they weren't setting out to do these things. I mean, I, I had a bunch of friends who were uh, computer science majors in school. They were, but they were also very, very smart in other capacities. I, one of my friends who I was just with, hanging out with the other night, he, he was a CS uh, and physics major, but he also read every science fiction book under the sun. He knows at his job where he's working on AI right now, yeah, of course he knows the potential ramifications of 
creating a robot that thinks just a little bit too hard and then ends up doing backflips and scares all the children. He knows, he knows that that sort of thing could happen, whether or not he's going to be able to be like, uh, this is a Skynet and we need to shut it down now. I don't know if that jumps into his head, but nevertheless, he was somebody with a background of philosophy and sociology. And in addition to actually being a really good computer programmer, um, but was, you know, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, was he, as he trained in, you know, the culture of humanity or civics or things like that? No, but he still controls the, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable on the channels that we communicate via. In a lot of cases, most, most people are on social media, butting heads. I don't see a whole lot of harmony. So I'm going to say that, man, I sure wished that the Dalai Lama had invented Twitter. Or at least been a consultant. Yeah. Okay. So what, Alex, is Outrage Culture's endgame? Where are we going? Outrage Culture. Um, Is Outrage Culture, by your definition, people who hear about an injustice done to one group or another, they raise, they raise, hey, somebody, an injustice was done here and something needs to be done about it, and we're not going to look the other way on this one? Do you think that's a fair definition of outrage culture? I think, I think outrage culture covers those, and it covers things like Gamergate, where a mob just jumps mm. on the latest outrage without any fact-checking or basis in sort of reasoned discussion. You know, this can be for something that really was a bad thing that did happen, or this can be for a perceived slight where a mob basically just brigades on someone. I hate internet mobs a lot. I think that is, that's mob mentality to the nth degree. And that's when you get things like, you know, in its mildest form, people review bomb games on Steam and decide that, nope, we're going to downvote this into oblivion because this is the muscle that we can flex to uh, sate a desire. That's really, that seems to me that those people are acting without a full palette of information because they say, oh man, these game developers, this is the example that I'm using, they're they're greedy and all they want to do is include microtransactions and I hate them for what they've done and therefore will nuke it. It's a longer conversation we can have about Star Wars Battlefront 2. But, you know, uh, I, I think of, I think that there's just a cruelty and a dissatisfaction that goes along with the mob thinking of this is an injustice and somebody's got to pay because iPhone X's screen doesn't unlock properly or some weird, petty, mean thing. And you just assume that somebody included that with the malice to make more money off of the hardworking consumer. And when you get 50,000 people on 4chan or, or NeoGAF who will do this stuff blindly and think that they're part of something greater, probably backed by a bot army hosted on a server farm out in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think that they're part of, a, of an army of, of a million strong. They think they're just doing something righteous. They think that they're the, you know, they, they fancy themselves as, a, as an appendage of anonymous or something like that. And they are doing some great good. And they just attach themselves to that identity, that outrage that they can notice these things and do something about it. That's a part of their identity. When, if we're talking about in the capacity of internet mobs, it's usually a bad thing. So here's a question. What percentage of them do you think would not join an internet brigade if they went to a soup kitchen once a week and helped serve? Realistically, 10%. (laughs) 
even if we take a very low estimate of 10%, yeah. I think people have lost a lot of civic engagement mm-hmm. and kind of getting involved in these internet brigades is a way to feel like you're part of something, like you're contributing, like you're doing good. I think if you gave some money to bell ringing Santa, you might not be so quick to jump on the latest hashtag train. Yeah, they're more psyched up to get mad about uh, something happening on the internet. Um, it, it, yeah, this is real dumb. So I went and saw Justice League last week, and it's fine. <laughs> That's my review. <laughs> ben, ben Shapiro has been tweeting endlessly about it. I'm it's not fine. sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little uh, That's a little but it is very much exactly what you would expect if you know anything about the background of the movie. Again, full transparency into the way these movies is made is a lucrative business. So we know that Zack Snyder directed it. His daughter tragically committed suicide and he stepped aside from the post-production of the movie and they brought in Joss Whedon to finish it. Joss Whedon reshot probably half of these inter- interstitial scenes. He did the, one of the, probably the final cut on the movie and he rewrote a bunch of stuff. You can very obviously tell which of the stuff was intended to uh, by Zack Snyder to be included and which was intended to be included by Joss Whedon. Now all these people have seen Justice League and they're so, so, so curious of the movie that Zack Snyder would have made if he had done it on his own and not been mourning the death of a child, which is really messed up. And now they are petitioning. They've, you know, change.org. They got 50,000 signatures. They want Warner Brothers to release the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, which is a cut of a movie that does not exist because he has not made a cut of the movie. But nevertheless, they think that that was the best thing to do with their afternoon. The action that most embodied their personhood. So you told go, me this. Go, go ladle some soup, bro. Understand that the director of this movie, his Shit kid happens. killed herself. Yeah. yeah. Let, That's let why he man, didn't make the movie. Let the man, let the man be. Let your, let your franchise yeah. movie just be what it is. Ah, Lord. Superheroes punching each other. Yeah. That takes us in. I think we're transitioning nicely into a recurring theme here, video games. But we want to take a look at video games with a little more look towards sort of the deep-seated needs that people, particularly young men, because that's a big part of the game demographic, have, and really how we interact with them. For you or for people you know or for the general public, what deep-seated needs do you think video games are delivering on? Uh, I love video games. Um, I tried to stop loving video games, but I couldn't. That's my that's my relationship with video games. What deep seated need are they delivering? Um, I don't think some people believe that it would be escapism. That that would be the word that people go to, or a hobby to keep you busy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is what it is for me. I think I'm very, I'm still very interested in uh, the in creativity and craft. And I think video games are an incredibly complex uh, piece of creativity. They include audio, video, interactivity. The software behind it is incredible. The artificial intelligence that they put into the games is also often very incredible. That's why I key in on games. I'm not as much interested in the social aspect of playing with other people. That's not exactly my jam. I'll do it sometimes. I'll play Overwatch. I'll play Destiny. Nevertheless, the craftsmanship at this point, I have played so many games for so long that I can tell the difference between the jump in Mario Odyssey versus the jump in Super Mario Sunshine versus the jump in Mario 64. I can tell the difference between all of them and I something goes off in my brain and I can think, 
ooh, I like this jump a lot more than that jump. That feels a lot better. And then, you know, my this forking fractal just goes off in my brain. And I'm like, that's that's the thing that happens to me now. More than the escapism, more than the, yeah, I'm a fighter pilot. It doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more interested in just feeding my, my gr- ever-expanding years-on-years history and relationship with games. That's interesting. So take it. So to go on a limb here, you probably play a lot more story-driven, more indie, more artistic games because you're looking at it more as like a, a painting or a piece of art. Yeah, I haven't. I think I've played one or two Call of Duties in the last couple of years. If we're going incredibly mainstream, I I played the I played all three Grand Theft Autos on PS2, but I did not play three or uh, four or five mm-hmm. as much. So in terms of you know plugging into the mainstream large budget stuff, I don't do it as often. I do play a number of indies. I don't really dive into the Steam Greenlight category and say like, "Yep, I'm going to grab up a bunch of these and see see what these teams of like four people are doing out mm-hmm. on the West Coast." I don't do that quite as much, but I do love Gone Home and Journey and mm-hmm. Flower and uh, I'm not cool enough to list off a third game right off the top of my head. Uh, I haven't I haven't played Undertale yet, so I'm really not cool. I'm I'm saving that one. I'm like, I know it's out there and it's not going anywhere. I'm going to pick it up off like a, like a vinyl record off the shelf one day and just play it. So it seems like you're driven more by creativity, by sort of the meta of everything. Yes. So for me, I think I fall somewhat on the other side of the spectrum, right? I play a lot of competitive games. I play a lot of team games where you have to be communicating and working with people. And for me, I think I fall on the other side where I'm more interested in sort of mastery in complexity and competition in sort of learning something and being really, really good at it and then doing it with other people where you're all really, really good at it and it sort of reaches this synchronicity or this flow state where you're just executing on your plan, whatever it might be, whether it's a stun, whether it's a grenade, you know, whatever is in that game. So that's interesting. I think we both find sort of different things and frankly, we've never played video games together. So I think no. that's reflected in our relationship. Well, apparently I would never play a video game with you because I'm not that guy. Yeah, I would end up probably yelling at you in all chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We would have to play like, uh, yeah, ultra, ultra competitive. <laughs> the most, honestly, the most, the most competitive uh, game that I ever played was probably Mario Kart 64 against my dad and my brother. Uh, no, that's not true. Um, Soul Calibur 2, freshman year of college. Was, Ooh, what's, what platform were you on? Uh, we were on Xbox. So mm, we had, see, that's fun. Yeah. Wow, see, I was, on, I was on GameCube, so I got yeah, late. Yeah, I had the GameCube version, but the, but the kid whose room we all hung out in had it on Xbox, so we played it on Xbox. Hey. Um, yeah, but uh, hey, Spawn isn't a terrible character. He was a pretty good fighter, you know? It was, uh, he had it going so on. I mean... My main was uh, Nightmare, and he had this move where if you dash forward and mash Y, or whatever the top button is for his overhand, mm-hmm. he would do like a sidestep, and he'd offset like 30 degrees before overhead power attack. Best move in the world. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Good good tangent on uh, on Soul Calibur 2. We'll come back oh. with, a, with a Soul Calibur episode. Buddy, I would be happy. Here. If you still have that around, I would be happy to do a Soul Calibur session. Ah, oh, dude. What tasks do you willingly complete in video games, but would never touch in real life? I think I actually play video games kind of similarly to the way that I live. Maybe I'm patting myself on the back a little bit too much, but when I roll up in a town in The Witcher, and they're like, Oh, my dog's falling down the well, and there's an old haggerty witch over at the ruined orchard. I'm like, so? 
what do you want me to do about it? Uh, <laughs> Which isn't exactly how I communicate with the townsfolk in the town that I live in. But I don't, I try not to sweat the really small things because I'm trying to live the most complete life. And if I'm going to go and help every single human being on earth, I don't know that it's necessarily going to necessarily going to be a good return on my investment. So you're much more loose with your free time in video games. Yeah. <laughs> so if we really turned you loose in Tamaria, you might just uh, open up a farm on some uh, depreciated ra war ravaged land. You may not be out there hunting uh, wyverns for the local barmaids. Only if it's only if I'm told that the wyvern is causing so much damage that I can justify like, yeah, that's a good question. If we don't get rid of this uh, wyvern, I'm going to be underwater on my farmstead. Yeah, and I can I can see all the people that it's affecting, and I can understand. I can my head can go forward a couple of steps and be like, I could use that money. Get that money and buy some wood. You're not sniffing after blood trails into the deep dark swamps. No, I don't think so. Uh, although the the thing that I do love about Man, the one thing that I do in, in video games that I don't do probably often enough in real life is the thing that you do so often in Zelda Breath of the Wild is you you basically come over the top of a hill and you see an expansive world out in front of you and you just sprint. You sprint down the hill and into the wilderness and you get muddy and wet and you climb mountains and you do all of just you want to see everything. And I don't do that often enough in real life. Buddy, that's what you take a vacation for. Like, I, I know we've talked about it just a little bit, but I went to Iceland a few months, like about a month ago, basically just drove around the place for a week. And anytime we saw something cool, we got out of the car. Even if it was raining, we got yeah. muddy, we got wet. And we're like, what's over this ridge? Yeah. That, 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 that. Let's go do that. Exactly. <laughs> let's let's take some pictures of things. Uh, I think, I think uh, you know, you're not going to come across an inspiring vantage you haven't seen before in Cambridge too often after yeah. you lived here a while. Anyway, let's let's move on just a little bit. Why are our brains thriving in modern hyperactive culture? Or where and how? And kind of what's the converse? Where do you feel a lot of friction and a lot of anxiety in modern life? I think our brains are thriving because they are constantly being engaged. This is a terrible example, but the, my I'm instantly thinking of that TV show Dollhouse from a long time ago that wasn't terribly good. But basically there's a plot twist at some point in the show where it turns out that some chemical that the human brain generates can be used to power the what's it device or something. Who cares? It's kind of like the matrix, but mm -hmm. they found out that the best type of brain to power the what's it device was a brain that was constantly, constantly, constantly in fear. So they inject this, let's call it, let's call it a program into these comatose people that keeps their brains in a heightened sense of fear so they can generate more go juice so they can power the what's it device i th but it's also killing the people so that's kind of all the metaphor that you need at this point if you are constantly going and your brain is constantly being touched with a needle or has some sort of chemical being released onto it because of the way that we interact because of the way that we have uh communicate via our devices at a rate that is not befitting of a human brain as it has evolved uh, at our current state because of that, I think we are lessening our our lifespans because our if you live a life where your heart rate is too high all the time, you're not going to live as long. If you live a life where your brain is constantly running, 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 running and fighting 
and thinking too hard, you're not going to live as long and you're not going to be as healthy. Yeah, I think I can identify with that a little bit. I think for me, it's like uh, the difference between breadth and depth. I find a lot of comfort and solace in the depth of information now. If I get obsessed with something, I can, you'll never read everything about it that's out there. And the conversations you can have now are so informed and so deep. If you find somebody who's geekily passionate in the same area you are, it can go, you can go forever. But where, for myself, where I find a lot of anxiety is in the breadth. You can think about that at work, right? You're getting constant emails from a million different people. You're supposed to know how to use six different tools. You have four or five different partners you're working with. And then you just have such a wide breadth of things that you know you have a hard time going into depth on any one thing. So for me, it's like a push and pull between the breadth and exposure and then depth where you can just go straight in there and learn everything you want about any one thing. And I think finding a balance of those two things is something I haven't really figured out yet. But I think once I do, it's going to be a, a good change. There's that line in Ghost in the Shell that I never really understood what they were getting at with it. And hmm. this is the English translation. So I, who knows if it's exactly what it was in Japanese. But the major basically says, over-specialize and you breed in weakness. And I'm like, who are we talking about when you say that? Because I guess on their team in Ghost in the Shell, like each person has a speciality, but they're also capable beyond that. And I think she's mm -hmm. talking to the guy who has like no, no mechanical enhancements. And she's like, I have you on the team because you can kind of do anything. And that's the type of person that I need to fill that role. Interesting. I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, are we meant to be specialists? Or are we meant to be rounded people? Or are we meant to kind of have a talent destiny and then, yeah, also you have to be a complete human being beyond that as well. Big question. Big question. I don't think you or I are qualified to fully answer that one, but I think it's a good point. It's a good thing to think about. And uh, I want to tell you, we've uh, made it through our questions. Yeah. Did you see the new Ghost in the Shell movie? Did you see the live action one? I did. I thought it was a pretty good take on it. I thought it yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. I heard a, you know, I... I there are certain critics that I'll go to and kind of weigh like the four or five opinions that I actually trust. Mm -hmm. And like, sometimes I'm a little bit surprised like, Oh, this one didn't like it, but this one did one, one dude who I usually, I, I, I respect his opinion on pretty much everything. And like he said, it was fine. And you know, you don't need to get bent out of shape about it. I'll say it reminds me of the newest stuff they've been releasing in the ghost in the shell anime series where it's not the old characters that maybe they do major when she's like 15 for some reason. Like it's pretty good. It touches on a lot of the same elements, but it's never going to be like watching, um, what was the first standalone, uh, standalone complex for the first time. And I'll tell you, I would love it if HBO or some other miniseries provider, Netflix, boop, got a hold of standalone complex. I think that's a much longer and much more fleshed out story. And I think it kind of, does that universe and the philosophies in it more justice than the original story did? All of standalone, well, I guess the original, the all of standalone complex, the series is on Hulu right now. But you're talking about having somebody adapt it into a longer form series. I would love to see a live action. Yeah. And I'll, let's, let's, any racial questions aside, Scarlett Johansson is not a very good major. I just did not think she was the right person for that role. No, uh, I love the major in Standalone Complex. She's not much of a character in the movie version, but 
the there's a lengthy flashback episode. I think it might be in the second season of the show where it shows her growing up, and she was so friends. yeah, she was so badly wounded as a kid that she became a cyborg when she was like eight or something like that. And then every couple of years they had to like, all right, we got to transition you into your new body, man. What a interesting storytelling concept. And what type of a person does she grow up to be when that's the case? She like, Oh, five years have passed. Here's your 17 year old body and five more years pass. And here's your new, new body. And this is probably going to be the body you're going to be in for the rest of your life. It's just so interesting where you have somebody who has parts or your growth is is just instantaneous, but you're still living in a human world. That's think, so that's so interesting. I love her character in the series. I agree. And I think I think there's a story beat in there too about basically most of their team's bodies are owned by the police department. Yeah. So they're almost just guests in this highly engineered government machine. Which yeah, let's I would love I would love to see the longer form stuff adapted. Yeah, that's that's a really cool, interesting uh, world out there. Standalone complex is basically just CSI with robots. Like mm-hmm. they, there's a there's a case that they got. I love the Tachikomas. Yeah. I think those those guys are really cool. I I love how they constantly are getting blown up, and then their software rewrites itself and goes back into a new uh, a new body, mm-hmm. and they all start out identical. But as time goes by, the AIs diverge, even though they're all based on the same kind of core AI and they all develop their own personalities. And it happens so gradually over the course of the series that by the time they get to the episode where they all have a conversation about it, you didn't even realize how different all their personalities had become. Exactly, exactly. And there's a spoiler alert. I thought it was really cool the way they summarized at the end. They basically had autistic kids enslaved to help build security architectures and that was where a lot of the trouble in the world was coming from, is these sort of enslaved geniuses. Uh, it's, it's an interesting story. But I, I think remember I, I that think, part. Yeah, that was the laughing man. He was one of them. Oh, man. Yeah. I got to get back. I got to get back in. I remember, all I remember is near the end where all the Tachikomas have to come and like protect the major, and they all get ripped up. And that was like right after you had gotten to know all of them. Dude, tears. <laughs> tears in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. So long story short, anyone who's only seen the live action Take a minute, go watch the uh, anime. It's really good. Yeah. Well, Alex, I think in the interest of brevity, uh, that's pretty much what we've got to talk about today. Hey, Hopefully we got some people thinking. Uh, if you made it this far, congratulations. Please talk to us on Twitter. Talk to us online. We would love to geek out with you about whatever's on your mind. Wait, I want to do one thing before, before the Let's end of the episode. Do I want to do, do, do one of the uh, lost questions from episode H, the Spook Dracula Scalibration episode that we never did on Halloween. Bonus content. Okay, hang on, wait. I'm going I'm to activate the bonus Halloween content question song. Okay, awesome. Here we go. Uh, okay, so from this list, I'm going to pick one of these questions, and all of these questions have to do with the scariness of a particular thing. Rank these monsters in terms of scariness. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, robots. No, robots or puppets? Which is scarier? Between just those two? Yeah, we're going to add the others on here, but between okay. those two. All right, all right, all right. We'll, we'll do a branching logic here. Yeah. Uh, I could fuck up a puppet. I have no concerns about a puppet who can get me. Mm. Robots, on mm. the other hand, I just rewatched Rogue One. 
that droid thing they have. You just donk someone on the head. You can't do anything about it. So Dude robots. is ruthless. And they got those dog robots that they're building in Boston Dynamics. They're oh, my Google. God, buddy. They're built by Google now. That's, that's kind of going on. At some point, look up on YouTube. The search term should something be something like, um, all the times Boston Dynamics has abused robots. And it's just a compilation of them, like, kicking robots. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to, like, kick them over while they're ice skating and stuff. And the robot's like, no, okay. actually, the robot usually stands up. Okay, so I think robots, because basically in the future, robots are going to be puppets, you know? They're just yeah. going to be walking around puppets as well. I, I could beat a puppet, and I'm a flashback. Yeah, okay, so robots, number one, puppets, number two. Um, okay, scariest thing, number three, microscopic space bacteria. Versus do robots? That? Do you think, no, do you think, on the list, do you think ro- they should be... The scariest thing? Do you think robots are still the scariest thing? Or do you think that microscopic space bacteria are scarier than puppets that can get you, but not as scary as robots? I think microscopic space bacteria beats robots every day. Okay. You could find a way to blow up a robot, but you get the wrong pathogen, the whole world can be infected. We could have another black plague before anyone even knows it's here. Yeah. Okay. So that's the scariest thing. That's still the scariest thing. Because, like, that's where life comes from, man. It comes from space. Exogenesis, man. It comes from stardust, bro. You think life comes from space? So does death. Okay, so number one on the list is microscopic space bacteria. Number two is robots. And number three is puppets who can get you. Uh, Okay, new one for the list. An immortal mummy cursed by pre-Christian black magic. Where would you put that on the list? Scarier scarier than uh, puppets? I'm just going to go in my rank of scariness. I'm going to start with microscopic space bacteria. I'm going to go to autonomous deadly robots and i think in a close third to autonomous robots are immortal mummies cursed by pre-christian black magic yeah i'm cool with that yeah and plus right. i give you an excuse want a quest yeah exactly okay cool all right last one last one for the list uh is time Ugh. i'll be honest with you man I think time is non-negotiable, so I don't think uh, it makes any sense to be necessarily scared of it. Be more mindful of it. See it as a resource. Yeah. That's good, which means that our list is microscopic space bacteria. Wait. No, we start at the bottom. Wait. But I will say, just to further show my disdain for murderous dolls, time is actually scarier than murderous dolls. So anybody who has a uh, fear of murderous dolls, haunted, I will teach you how to kick living, <laughs> you know, some sort of Chucky, non-Chucky kind of situation. If you have a chronic fear of that, get over it, buddy. Exactly. If you can't take out a six-ounce doll, I can't help you. <laughs> okay. So here's our list starting at number five this, of the scariest thing is puppets who can get you. Number four is time. Number three are immortal mummies cursed by pre-Christian black magic. Number two, robots. And the scariest possible thing is microscopic space bacteria. Assuming it is malevolent microscopic space bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. If it's coming to get you. I feel like we really, uh, I feel like we really cleared up some important questions. Just well, now. that's why I wanted to do the scary episode because it would help you get over your fears because I'm afraid of puppets who can get me. Really? Yeah. See, here's what you do. I used to do this until my wife made me get rid of it. Keep a machete under the bed. 
A puppet is no match for a machete. Hmm. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Hey, we'll get some machetes. No. Yeah. Eh, I don't know if that's really going to go with the girlfriend. Um, <laughs> or, you know, sanity. <laughs> All right, buddy. All right, buddy. This hey, that was a good one. That was a really nice uh, uh, spook Dracula celebration. I'm glad that we got to squeak in that question. I can taste the candy corn. I'll tell you, man, I usually don't buy candy corn because I'm like, I can't eat this whole bag. So I haven't bought candy corn for like two years. This year I bought a bag of the corns and a bag of the pumpkins. Mm. I ate that in like two weeks. It's disgusting. Yeah. I've, I've, I've still got a bunch of uh, Halloween candy that I had at my house. Um, and just the one kid came. So I've got three whole bags of this stuff and I've just been working my way through it. You, I thought you looked. I thought you looked a little uh, on edge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I, I guess that's the show. I, we can go out with a quick round of plugs. Uh, I'm Alex Crum. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Crum. You can find my writing on GhostLittle.com. Uh, the article that I wrote for Laser Time about Diddy Kong Racing got to the top of the Nintendo subreddit. Uh, where I I posted it and it stayed up there. It got like 30,000 views. So that was kind of an unintentional success. That is great. I think that goes right at the top of the resume. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Above like everything. Like, yep, I wrote wrote a blog. I wrote a blog article for a podcasting website because it was the 20th anniversary of Diddy Kong Racing. And then I posted it on Reddit and it was very popular. (laughs) And you could find me on uh, Twitter at Joel Trog, J-O-E-L-T-R-O-G. I'm obviously here on the Ghost Little Podcast, and I'm working on a little something else on the side, which I will share more about as it develops. Ooh, nice. Oh, yeah. Like, that's oh, a yeah. good... Leave them, leave them wanting more. That's it. That's yeah. it. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, go out there, find your tribe, get involved, do things that get you in a flow state, and... Uh, be happy don't be a horrible person who gets mad about stuff on the internet because it's not what you're used to